ways you can subtly affect change, at least early on. You'll find that over time that the change you want will be there. If you subtly and effectively do small things here and there, you're going to get where you want to go. Meet with people, ask questions, take your time, you know, make sure you know your staff, keep your staff well, and you'll succeed and get where you need to go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides Inaugural Podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, and I am so excited about this week's episode. Today, we're talking about new approaches to leadership in education abroad and how practitioners in our field can lead from any level. In this episode, we have the privilege of tapping into the wealth of knowledge and expertise of our very distinguished guest, my friend, Larry Pickner, Director of Global Education at Boston College in beautiful Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. Larry has been at Boston College since 2007 and has been director for a little over two years. Larry and I have known each other for many years, and I have just been thrilled to watch him grow into the leader that he is today. I'm always inspired by my conversations with Larry, and I can't wait to pick his brain about what it means to be a good leader in international education in 2024. Stay tuned, everyone. You do not want to miss this episode. Larry Pickner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you and seeing what wisdom I may be able to deliver to your listeners. Likewise, you and I know how to get into some trouble together. I'd like to ask you to please give us an overview of your professional journey up to this point and tell us about your current role at Boston College. I think like most people in our field, my journey really started before I knew the education abroad field even existed. Uh, I spent a full year abroad, my junior year in college in Newcastle, England. Uh, and then Again, like many people came back, had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, luckily, I found someone at my college who pointed me in the direction of higher education. Uh, and luckily from there, I quite frankly stumbled into a graduate assistantship at UMass Amherst as a graduate student and within their study abroad office. And, you know, from there went on to Skidmore College for two and a half, almost three years, and then found my way back to Massachusetts and into the in into working at Boston College, uh, where I've been since, as you said, 2007. Um, so I have my, like many people, I have my master's in higher education. Uh, I slowly and steadily progressed up and have taken a lot, a lot with me from those different positions. So thank you for sharing that, Larry. You know, I often think to, to myself that some of my very favorite directors in this field and the people I look up to the most are those that have been promoted from within their institutions. Because, you know, I'm sure you you know how to use the fax machine in your office, but you could also lead a strategic planning meeting, um, which I think says a lot. I would agree with you. It's been an, it was a very nice surprise. I enjoyed my time at BC. And yeah, I was lucky enough two and a half years ago when there was an opening to become first interim. And then, you know, very quickly after that was appointed to the full-time position, which was wonderful. I didn't know what I would do if, I, if that did not work out for me, but luckily it did. Uh, and I'm happy to still be at BC. Well, fantastic. And, and belated congratulations to you, my friend. You've worked at BC for over 15 years, as you mentioned. 
That says something about the opportunities available to BC employees and the institutional culture on your campus. What is something special about education abroad at BC that you'd like to highlight? I think like many institutions, there are many things that BC does that other institutions do as well. We value students going abroad and thinking about their journey. We, we want them to explore outside of big cities or outside of just traveling and quote unquote having fun. But, but I think one of the things to me that makes BC special in this regard is we still rely upon creating ex- exchange partnerships, direct relationships with with universities all over the world, we you know probably add one or two every year uh, where there's a strategic need in some regard. But at the same time, we don't neglect external programs either, third-party providers. So we offer a, a multitude of opportunities for our students. Uh, there really shouldn't be an excuse for any of our majors or any of our students to, to go abroad. Outside of that, I think Boston College is a really nurturing place. I, I really buy into their their vision of the Jesuit values and discernment and things like that. Uh, and, I, and I like to include that within sort of our study abroad options too. So see, it's a unique place to work. I think there are many unique places to work, but BC seems to suit me and suit the students who come through our office. BC has chosen to incorporate the Office for International Programs and the Office of International Students and Scholars within the Office of the Vice Provost for Global Engagement whose activities cover all international programming. I realize I just said the word office several times. But this announcement was underpinned by a clear dedication to increase inclusivity when it comes to international education and the expansion of the home tuition model. Tell us more about these updates and what they will mean for Boston College students. But yeah, it was exciting. and It was interesting, too, because this announcement came to me probably within a week after I would assume the interim director position. So it's a congratulations. Here's everything that you've known and it's all changing, which is exciting though. So I think there are really two underpinning things that make this interesting and wonderful for BC and for study abroad at BC. One of which is you touched on is the homeschool tuition model. I think for years we had this disparity of if you did a certain type of program, you paid BC and all your financial aid went with you. If you wanted to take advantage of anything non-BC, you know, for some students, it made sense. But if you have financial aid, you couldn't do those programs. You, 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 it was a cost prohibitive to you as a student. Now, all of our programs are the same tuition. Financial aid will go with students. Grants, scholarships, all of that stuff are not exclusive to certain type of programs at BC. So we're hoping that that will open up more opportunities for more students at Boston College. The other side of the coin is with the vice provost of global engagement is BC has really started to take another step forward to be known as an international university, to be, I think the, the, the phrase he's working on now is that BC is global beyond just study abroad, beyond just exchange. So it opens up ways for us to collaborate with other universities, particularly Jesuit and Catholic, but not exclusively so. It puts an emphasis on campus that there are international opportunities beyond semester exchange for incoming students. So it's been really, it's made the, it's made my job much more exciting. It's made international much more part of BC. And if I'm correct on this, I believe the new capital campaign is just being announced. There's a small little blurb of the capital campaign will also help with international study. 
which is wonderful to see. So it's been very positive and makes my job a bit easier to have that support and have everyone in one office. That's great, Larry. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Given your growth and trajectory at Boston College, it means you now lead a large team in your role as director. How would you describe your leadership style and how has it evolved over time? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot, be mainly because I think my leadership style is, I would first describe it as, I would call myself a collaborative leader. The idea that everyone in my office has a voice and more importantly, has a role and a perspective. I'm, I did not walk into this job thinking that now that I am director, that I need to be able to understand the ins and outs of our office budget, which is rather complex. I have a wonderful associate director whose job is to do that and is quite good at it. Beyond understanding where our money is going and, and going out, I have to trust her. At the same time, I can't be involved involved as much as I was with our advising process anymore with our students. I have too many other responsibilities that are pushing and pulling me. I have to trust my advisors to make decisions, and I've had to give them that trust. The nice thing about the style is that I, it allows me to step back, but also to give credit to people in my office when things are going well. The downside is I, I still, as a leader, realize if things go wrong, it's going to eventually come back to me anyway. But if, again, we're collaborative. As long as people are telling me what's going on, as long as they're asking for input and not necessarily relying on me to say yes to everything, it worked quite well. Uh, I think my staff is starting to understand this. Um, I think your point about me being at BC for quite a while is, is good. Most of the staff that is in my office, I've worked with in some way or another. Um, even some of the new people we hired were, were associated with BC. So it's been good because people understand sort of where I'm coming from and have been appreciative that I'm asking them for input and to make decisions, to own those decisions and feel comfortable with them. Uh, I'd add though, it took, it took some work in that first year or so to, to sort of get this across, to, to get away from the standard, more authoritative, I am the director, this is what we need to be doing, which I didn't want to do. I wanted to be, I'm the director, let's lead forward, let's lead together, let's move the office forward together. Uh, and I, I think it's been successful. Frankly too, and Zach, you and I have known, known each other for a while. I think it's just my personality too. I don't want to be that person who tells everyone what to do. I want to work collaboratively to get to the goal of the office. You know, I, I love what you said. I think about it a lot myself is the best leaders are true to themselves and, and really lead with authenticity. And so, you know, that's called bringing your whole, your whole self to work and, and, and leading in that way rather than kind of applying a framework to leadership that doesn't necessarily suit you. So I think that that's great. Yeah. And just to add, add from there too, I think that, uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to go into this not being myself. I I I feel very strongly that as a, that in the types of jobs that we have, whether it's in an office, on the road, there's a human element to this. And and I think particularly post pandemic, where we've done some hybrid working, or people have reassessed what's important to them, and sometimes what's important to them is their family life or needing time. But I didn't want to walk into this all of a sudden not acknowledging that I have outside interests. I have a family that I have to attend to. Sometimes going to the lacrosse practice early is more important than staying to the end of the day, right? And you, you find ways to work with people with their schedules and to make 
make it work for them. It's very hard to find good people. Uh, and I like my team. I want to work with them. As long as the work's getting done, I'm happy. Uh, and if it's not getting done, we'll have a conversation and figure out what we can do to help get the work done and, and, and move forward together. Say a lot for the people in the back, Larry. I could not agree more. Uh, you know, those of us who have been in the field for some time, you know, like yourself, are able to see patterns as our field evolves. One of those areas of evolution is the composition of leadership. How have you seen the composition of leadership in international education evolve in the post-COVID era? It's been interesting because I think, as many of us know, during COVID and post-COVID, the field has seen a fair amount of turnover. We see a lot of new faces in a lot of different positions. We see faces we've known for years in different positions that are either not in at abroad or just tangentially related. We see people coming in and out of the field. And I think at the same time, I've seen from, you know, right before the pandemic to now, a good percentage of new directors coming into the job and they they seem to be a little more diverse in their background. There seems to be less focus on coming out of academia uh, overall, at least initially. Uh, I mean, I, I'm coming from out of academia, but as I've shared with you, Zach, I'm also now pursuing an EDD. But the position came first. The EDD and having that credential is coming second. And I, and I feel like I'm seeing that more often. I think, there's, I think initially when I started in the field, while at some schools you did not have to have that terminal degree, if you wanted to keep progressing in the field, that terminal terminal degree, uh, not having it may have held you back. I don't see that as much now, but I still feel like there's an emphasis on eventually getting more education. And so I've seen a little bit more of like people coming into leadership positions where their experience and what they've done with that experience matters more than the credentialing. Not to say credentialing is not important. But I think that that experience that people relied more on professionals who've done this for 15, 20 years and sort of taking that, taking a chance on that, particularly as our field has become more professional with, you know, with the forum, with NAPSA, with the site visits, with everything that's out there consistently. If you don't have that terminal degree, you have had, you've had a, a, a ton of professional training in many different ways. And I think that's being recognized more and more. I could not agree more. I think, you know, when I, you and I first started out, many of the senior leaders in our field, you know, were had academic backgrounds, were from oftentimes the faculty, likely led students abroad themselves. And so it was sort of, we're asked to take on these roles, but you know, there's really been just an exceptional professionalization of, of the field over the past, I would say 30 years or so. And and now you have folks like yourself and myself who you know, are, are trained and died in the wolves, international educators first with the advanced degrees coming later. I think that's really well said. When someone is a strong and effective leader, it's often because they've worked their way up and know the ins and outs of the roles of each member of their team. Talk to us about how, once we are promoted, we can best navigate and nurture those human relationships that also shift when there are structural changes. We touched on this a bit already in terms of the, the idea of authenticity. I can speak for myself, but I recall being very deliberate about my first few staff meetings when I was when I was first interim director, uh, and then when I became full time director of first reminding people that I'm still neat. 
you still know you still know my my positives and my negatives. You still know sort of what I'm good at and what I'm not what I'm not so good at. Um, I took time in that for those first few months to remind people that hey, you know what I I need to also learn from you. Now that I'm in this new role, I may not have paid as much attention to our summer faculty-led program. I'm going to be asked to comment on them. Can you educate me? So it was deliberate in those first few months to work with people directly, it's particularly in roles that I wasn't comfortable with. I think in terms of the relationship side, I was somewhat careful to at times step back from, you know, the we don't have a cafeteria, but, you know, sitting with everyone at the cafeteria, I recognized pretty early on that people need space from their boss. They could, have, they, they could enjoy my company. They could like working with me. I assume they do. I hope they do. But I also know I'm, I'm now the boss. And that changes how you talk to me because I have to enact policies. I, I sometimes I can't always be as forthright as I would like to be regarding certain circumstances. So I've also had to at times step back and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave and you guys, you guys go out, you have your night out. I'll, I'll you know, do what I need to do. I, what's been nice is that I'm still included. It's not as if people have said, oh, you're the boss and we don't want you around. We still you know, there's a few of us in the office. We we collect vinyl records. We and they're younger, so we trade vinyl records back and forth still. But I also know when there's a time to be like, all right, I I have to go, or you have to go. You have to go do your job. Um, I'm still acceptable, and I'm still there. I just had to, you know, put some bombies up here and there. Thanks for sharing that, Larry. One challenge when we remain at the same institution for a significant period of time, but grow in our role and responsibilities, is that it can be hard for us to ensure that our colleagues outside our department, such as faculty and administrators, view us as leaders during our transition. What advice do you have on this topic? What's interesting with this question is that sometimes you don't see the transition coming. Sometimes you can be at an institution for a long time and think that the next step will be somewhere else. I, to be honest, did not think too far ahead on, on, in, in this regard. Would my next step be at BC? Or would my next step be somewhere else? I, I have always enjoyed my time at BC and was hoping and hopeful that eventually I'd have the opportunity. So to the point of the question, you can act one way within your office and with your team as you're coming up. You know, the, you're the study abroad person, you're, you know, you hear your interests, here's your personality. But I think when you're interacting with faculty and staff that you don't know or work with that much, you have to, I, I had to sort of at times think, well, some one, I'm representing the office. This is even prior to being the director. I'm now representing the Edinburgh office or the OIP when we were international programs. I need to put my best foot forward. I need to, under, you know, maybe act, act or hold myself a little more professionally, bite my tongue a little bit more. And probably most importantly, I had to listen much more. You know, many of the faculty I interact with then and now have a much greater stake in, in the university in a, in, a, in a different way than I did. So it was listening and sort of hearing them. I think it's also, I had to take some interest in what they were doing in their field or how they directed the BC. So I, you know, I would occasionally do professional development events at BC, or I would seek out senior administrators who I knew from other things. And we would just chat and you sort of start, I started laying a groundwork of, I'm not just interested in at abroad. I'm interested in Boston College and the mission and what we're doing. So tell me more about what you're doing. And I think that's helped because then it lays the groundwork of 
okay, this person is interested not just in running running the study abroad office, they're interested in the mission of the university. They've expressed interest. So it's, it's not a simple advice answer, but it's the idea of, you know, represent yourself and your office well as you're, as you're getting comfortable at a university, take an interest of what the mission is of the university and ask questions of people. Like, don't be afraid to talk to all the professionals maybe look at what they're doing for their research just to have a little bit of an idea of what that looks like. Well, there's just such an intentionality in what you're talking about here, Larry. It's even, it's like being intentional in the way that you listen and ask questions to folks on campus who you might actually have known for many years, but now because of you have a new role, you have a new relationship with them in a way. So approaching that, that those interactions with curiosity and an open mind, I really like what you said. I think that's really wise. You are someone who has successfully earned and then thoughtfully navigated several promotions. If you had to set goalposts for others in new roles, what would you suggest that folks seek to accomplish in year one or after year five? In other words, how can we be strategic in forward thinking while we learn and grow in the present? I've thought about this question independent of our conversation because I think with some experience in the field, I've seen young, let's say newer professionals or you, you know, five years or less in the field coming into an office and having done the master's, maybe done some additional coursework, have had experiences and want to change the out-of-broad world or want to change the office or want to meld the office into what, what we believe education abroad should look for every place. You, they look at the forums mission and, and, and whatnot. All good things, all things we should strive for. But I think particularly in that first year of any new job, whether you're new to the field or you're like myself and you work, you've been in some place for a while, that first year really slow down, take, take the pulse of both the office and the institution. Great to have new ideas. It's great to present those new ideas, but you're going to find that there are people in an office or working adjacent to it and at a broad office that have been there for a long time. And have had either have very good ideas that may not have worked or are very set in their ways. And it's hard to come in that first year and totally upset the apple cart as it were. It, 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 it can build resentment. I think taking that first year to kind of getting a sense of what is, what is actually going on here? Where can I fit in? Not only fit in, but then after that first year, where can I expand? What can I approve upon? What is something that is working fine? I always thought you didn't want to say this is wrong. We should totally change this. What's working, but what can we make better? What can we improve? What are the small things we can improve? So I think particularly in that first year, maybe even slightly longer, taking your time and, and, re and remembering that institutions, not just offices, but the entire institution, all of higher education, there's, a, there's much inertia. We move very, very slowly as an institution, not, not just BC, not just particular schools, but as higher end in the U.S., we move very slowly. So I think take your time. Then as you've done that and built some cred, then you can start sort of setting goals and things like that. To the other part about the, to the five, you know, five years or more, I think as one becomes more confident in what works for you and what doesn't work for you, it's a bit easier to say, you know what, this works for me. This is what I want to build upon. Years ago, one of the professional development opportunities that BCA had relied upon the idea of using the whole site trainers thing within management. 
the idea of leaning into your strengths. I think at a certain point, you lean into what works for you. It does not mean sort of take away from improving yourself on other things, but what works for you works, then do more of that and, and, and know that it's good. But yeah, I think initially it's like, take your time, be patient, but don't be complacent either. People do want to hear about new ideas, just not the first day on the job. It's like strategic patience, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. As we go on our roles, Larry, you know, I've talked about this a lot. Uh, it becomes more and more likely that we will at some point supervise others. What makes a good manager? This answer might come across slight, slightly selfish, but, but not about me being selfish, but you as a manager being selfish. Ultimately, as a manager, if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not taking care of your wellness, if you're not taking a, if you're not pausing, taking a deep breath, or stepping away, if you're burning yourself out, you're not going to be the most effective manager you can be. So I'd say first and foremost, when you become a manager, you all it doesn't matter if you have two people reporting to you or eleven. It's more work. You have to manage personalities. You have to make sure people's work is getting done. You have to also work on your own work. But if you are not being kind to yourself, if you're not thinking of your own wellness, whether it's physical, mental, or otherwise, you're not going to be an effective manager. I also go back to the authenticity. And that's not even about, you know, for me, authenticity, so those of you listening and Zach who knows me and who might know me, I'm probably too authentic and too out there at times. I tell people everything. I'm very trusting, good and bad, I think. But often being authentic, is more about being true to yourself. If you are much more closed to you know your personal life, that's okay. Just own it. Just say, oh, well, yeah, this, you, but be open to other people not being like you are too. You know, be open to the to people like myself who might not be directors at the time who want to tell you everything. Everyone with different types of personalities in every office. Learning how to navigate that is one of the most important things as well as taking care of yourself. You know, you, you touched upon two things that I want to amplify because I think they're really important. You know, thinking about the ways that we present ourselves at work as managers and knowing that our team members are going to be watching us and taking their cues from us, right? And so if we're not honoring work-life balance or if we're not taking care of our, our mental and physical well-being, our team members are going to th I think that we don't expect that of them either. What would you say to that? I would agree with that. And I was... I was Thinking as you were talking too, that I, going back to sort of something I was saying a little while ago about being authentic and being that I'm fair myself about who I am and my interests in my life, that I'm pretty transparent. I think the other side of that is knowing if that's who you are, and I know that's who I am, of when to set those boundaries. I mentioned boundaries earlier. I think what I've, the, the, the ability of having worked at BC so long is that I also can very quickly flip that switch and be like, you know what, let's now all act professional or let this needs to get done in this way. You have to also show that you're able not just to be this affable, fun boss. And I would not describe myself as the affable, fun boss. I, I think I'm fine to work with, but I'm not, you know, uh, making um, animal balloons or hate every day or some, some, something to make people laugh. You have to also prove that you can do the job and do the job of everyone else in the office, that you have to understand. So that goes back to that attentive listening, being thoughtful about how you respond as well. So there's two, there's two sides to that coin uh, as well. Be, be who you are, but also know you, show people you can do the job. I like that a lot too. 
you know, something else that you said that I wanted to pick up on was that in your approach to hiring and recognizing the strengths of your team when they might be different than yours, right? Because I remember when I first started managing people, I was looking for people who were carbon copies of Zach. And that was actually not what I needed at all. Folks that come with different experiences and different perspectives and different skill sets could are really what make a team dynamic. What would you say to that, Larry? I would 100% agree with you in, in, in that. We all want to work with people that we get along with. I'm not saying you want to hire someone you don't get along with, but you want to take that moment to maybe if you're looking at a resume or in your, you're in an interview and you're, and you're thinking, not sure, we're, we're not vibing, but then you want to ask questions for very much related to the job and see, probe about, okay, what, but what do they bring to this table? It would not be fun to work with everyone who is just like me in my office. And I don't have a team like that. And I've hired a few people in the last two years. So I think finding people who either complement your strength or even just add a different dimension. There are people in my office and, and we all get along if they happen to listen to this. We, they, we, they know this. But there are people in my office who have very different skills than I do and very different personalities. But I find we all find the ways to work together. We all find that common ground and we, and we will say at times like, okay, let's give this to person X because this is their skill set. This, this is, I don't need to do this. They need to do this and they would do it better than I will because I'm not taking my time on it. It's going to be better for the office. Uh, and it's something that I look for when, I, when I'm hiring. I think there are a lot of people you know, who are similar within our, in our field to, on, on, some, on some levels, particularly who've done advising. I value finding that that difference, whatever the difference may be, you know, different life experience, different ways of studying abroad, you know, things of that nature, studying abroad as an adult as opposed to an undergraduate, something like that. They're all very valuable skills. Absolutely. One thing that I've been in a lot of conversations with lately with, with friends who are leaders on the institutional side is that even if like at our hearts as, as supervisors and leaders, we want to be flexible to our team and allow things like remote work and, and flexible work arrangements. We're sometimes constrained um, by the policies of our institutions. How can we, Larry, as leaders, encourage that kind of flexibility for our team when sometimes we don't have the final say in terms of what work is done, when and where? Yeah, I, I wrestle with this question a lot because we, you know, BC very much values the in-person advising and the in-person working. What I've recognized is that you can be flexible on those margins, but you also have to set clear expectations to the that to your to your team and my place my team that the expectation is that you're in the office. The expectation that it's nine to five. Let's work on that first and then let's work around the margins to see it to figure out there, you know, there is a day where you there, this day you can work from home. It can't be a game time decision. You can't call me at nine in the morning saying, I'm just going to work from home. Let's think about ways we can plan that ahead. Let's think about ways we can give some. So how do you, so you kind of work with people individually without privileging one person over the other. So you're not, I'm not allowing someone to work five days a week from home. It's let's find out what worked for you and for the office. So it's finding ways within the policies to make, make work-life balance work well for everyone. I think that's really well articulated. Thank you for sharing that. Larry, one topic that's been on my mind a lot lately are is the generational differences in our field right now and, and how that's impacting the way that we do our work. 
as you know, I'm a proud millennial, and and there are a lot of us who are millennials in this field. And you know, there's if you look at forum and NASA and, and the conferences we all go to, there's a lot of sessions on Gen Z. But I think a, a generation that's often forgotten are is, is Gen X, and I know you identify as Gen X. What would you say defines Gen X as leaders? Yeah, I do. So I'm at the very tail end of Gen X, but I feel very much more Gen X than even Xennial. What defines Gen X as leaders is that we have been able to straddle really two or three different generations and different generational shifts in a short amount of time. We were raised by boomers. We came to work. We came to work when baby boomers were in their ascendance, but all, you know, and sort of holding on to their ascendance. So there are people who, there's a trend within baby boomers who are not retiring uh, and, and working for quite a long time. To your point, I'm presenting, <laughs> presenting on this idea. I asked in a few weeks with a few of our colleagues that we know in the field. I think with Gen X, we have that experience of like, we've worked with baby boomers. We've worked mo- with millennials. We're also working now with Gen Z. One of the traits of Gen X is that we have seen different leadership styles. We have seen different working styles. We've, we've had to adapt to technology. So I'd say we are very adaptable. I can view Gen X sort of on the lower end, like myself, or on the higher end as almost a bridge to the millennials and Gen Z, as well as bridging away from baby boomers in the workplace. That's not a flag on the baby boomers that they are will, they will be retiring and moving on. So I think we're very much that bridge generation. And I think we bring a lot of what worked in the past as well as what didn't work in the past while recognizing what's working in the future for millennials and Gen Z. I think we can be good mentors, good guideposts, sort of hop that baton to where would the workplace is going, where working styles are going and things, things like that. We're flexible. We, you know, we, we had to adapt to a lot before there was an internet. Before anything like that, we were, we've often been the lost generation. So we've kind of had to make our own way in many ways and find ourselves now in leadership positions at the same time that millennials are becoming leaders. So I think we can be sort of that bridge for the next generation. You know, I think what you're saying about characteristics that define Gen X are the outcomes of a study abroad program, right? It's like flexibility, adaptability, cross cultural communication. So I'm, I don't know, you're very much selling me on Gen X's leaders, Larry. Yeah, well, I hope so, because there's only a few. There's not, that a, lo- there's not a lot of us, um, but we're, we are here for, for a little while. I think one of the defining trends over the past five or so years in international education has just been a, a new crop of leaders, both at, at universities and the, and the provider sides, really come of age. What advice would you have for newly minted managers in our field? Take your time. You know, and take your time with the job. Like, there's there's no rush to move on to the next thing. Don't come into a position and sort of tailor the position to you, at least right away. Look at what's working well at the institution. Look at what, look what the institution wants you to do and go from there. Find ways you can subtly affect change, at least early on. You'll find that over time that the change you want will be there. If you subtly and effectively do small things here and there, you're going to get where you want to go. Coming in and totally blowing up the office or enacting change and not under, not getting a pulse of the university or the, or the place is really tough. The other thing I would say is not only get to know your team, however you want to do that, whatever works for you, get to know the administrators that you work with the most. Who, what is the advisor who all the students are going to outside of study abroad? 
what schools are sending the most people. Talk to those people. Find out what they need to know. Tell them what they need to know as well about abroad. I think one of the things that was very effective in my first few months was I met with everyone in the School of Arts and Sciences at BC. Anyone who is responsible for undergraduate study in the School of Arts and Sciences, I met with every single one of them. We talked about what abroad was was good, what, what they needed for abroad, what wasn't working, how we could help them. I had the benefit of having been at BC, so I kind of told them, no, actually, this is misinformed. Let's figure out. Never said they were wrong, so they were misinformed. Meet with people, ask questions, take your time, do things like do you know? Make sure you know your staff, keep your staff well, uh, and you'll and you'll succeed and get where you need to go. Thanks for sharing that, Larry. We all need positive role models in our lives. Whose work would you like to lift up, and what have you learned through mentorship over the years? I think back to my UMass days and. The people throughout, I'm going to name a few, but I think back to my UMass days and I think of Kristen Mallory, who's now the director at Claremont McKenna, just a good person, always sort of there to help out, help, was working at UMass at the time, working in the area, one of the first people who worked for the forum, just was always there with a kind word and support and a good laugh, a good person. So she was definitely a mentor to me. She's heard this a lot and I think she's always surprised, but Corey Filson, when I was at Skidmore, was someone who I think I listened to much more in my head after I left Skidmore, to be fair. And, and I think that's a fair statement to say, but she's been a mentor to sort of see how confident one can be when you're newer to a role, because I believe she was newer when I started at Skidmore years ago. So the confidence of like, no, I know what I'm doing. I really took from her. And then, you know, mentorship, like in general, like I have worked with a lot of great colleagues in the field, you know, yourself included, Zach, just to be there as someone to have a, have a drink with coffee or otherwise, and just commiserate. I feel like I could like sit here like an Academy Award speech and start thanking all the people that I know and that we that you and I know, but there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who left me out doing very good work. What's interesting, I think sometimes the people who are doing good work right now too are not directors. They're sort of the associate directors, the sort of the second on the line, assistant directors, things like that or are just becoming directors who are sort of making their mark. So there are probably too many people to really bust up. And it's not cliche, but if if they happen, if, if you know me and you're listening to this, you're probably one of those people I'm thinking about right now. You know, what you're saying, though, makes you think about how it truly takes a village for us to be effective leaders in this field. You mentioned that a lot of the innovation in our field right now is coming from the from our friends who are at the assistant director and associate director level. And I want to dig into this a bit more. What is your advice for folks who may not have that that senior leadership uh, role yet, but want to cultivate leadership skills? It's something that I did and I've seen others do. It's identify the things that are missing in the office. And that doesn't mean things that are missing or, or not sort of being done well, but where is there a place you can step up and lead? Where is there an initiative that you're thinking, you know what, I was at a forum form presentation. This sounded really good. This idea sounded really good. How can I incorporate it? But at the same time, don't go it alone. Talk to your director. Also talk to your director about what are the what what do you want to be doing in, you know, five years? Are there ways you can booster your resume? Are there ways that you can sort of enhance your resume or or your job prospect? But I think internally in the job, look for things that are not getting done or could be done differently. Definitely at times came back from conferences thinking like, 
all right, we're going to try this one small thing. Like I was in, before I was a director, I was in overseeing or advising. So I would come back and be like, what is, what is this one thing that someone is doing that we're not? Not that we were, we weren't failing at it. We were doing quite well, but what is the one or two, what are these one or two things that we're not doing that we can do? Because a lot of the times your director is going to say, sure. Well, you know, like, go for it. Try it out. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We'll go back to what we're always doing. But if it does work, then it's something you can point back to and say, you know, that initiative I had regarding, you know, I think one of the ones I did, but it's very small, was instead of having people opt out, we had the, we just automatically had them opt into something in our sign-up sheet. And it made a difference. Not a huge difference, but it was just a, it became a different way of thinking, became a more positive way of thinking. There, I'm sure for anyone out there, there are a myriad of examples you can think of. I think we sometimes get paralyzed by thinking, what is the big thing we can do? That's going to slow you down. You're going to get you're going to get a parent phone call or multiple, and you're going to be busy, and that big thing is going to become just a monster that you're waiting to do. Waiting, waiting, waiting. What are the small things you could do? What are the multiple small things you can do to to sort of make a difference in your in your office that might ease the burden for your director? Like, great, I don't have to worry about this anymore. You do this. You know, hopefully it succeeds and and whatnot. So look for the things that are not being done and do them. I think that's great advice. Like it's almost like seek out the space where innovation is needed. Yeah. On your team and work with your supervisor to lead in that space. I can speak as a supervisor myself. I love it when my team members do this because I know I can't do everything and and I, I want them to to step up. So really great advice. Yeah. And just one other point too, that just there's something you mentioned earlier, but I think there's sometimes a mistaken idea that as a leader, you know everything or you can do everything. I am not at all very good about putting together presentations, right? I could talk your ear off and I'll probably convince people to go abroad and not in those spaces. And I'm good at that. I'm not good at the presentation. So why am I going to worry about it? I have people in my office who are excellent at that. I'm good at editing, editing them, right? So here's my idea. Can you help me? Doesn't, you know, even as a, as a director, asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of trusting your team. I ask for help all the time. And, you know, and I don't mind admitting that I can't do everything, nor do I want to, nor do I have the time to do everything. Ask for help. I too, Larry, succeed at the art of winging it. Um, but, and, and that's why I so appreciate when team members are like, no, let's put a, let's put our presentation together and kind of provide that, that organization. So it's a great example. You know, as we begin to wrap up here, I just have one more question for you, my friend. As you ponder education abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? There are a lot of wonderful people in our field. I truly believe that. I truly think there are, there are many people who are in the field for the right reasons, whatever those reasons may mean for them, right? There's not one answer to that. So I'm hopeful that that we continue as a field to build not just good leaders, but good people who are contributing to our field, but contributing to their institutions and contributing, contributing to their community. I hope more of our kind of persist through some of these challenging times. We, we know that there's been turnover and, and whatnot, but I hope that, you know, we continue to develop good, good people uh, and people who want to work with students. I think it's one of the things that I've always enjoyed about this field is that you have to have a passion for what we do to do what we do. You have to sort of sit back every day and say, you know what, I know I said the exact same thing to 10 students yesterday about why they should go to this place, but for some, for some of those people, 
the first time they've heard it. And that idea that you can trigger into a student or students that, you know what, I do want to spend a full year abroad and then know that that's going to change their lives. Even if you don't see the results, I think that's wonderful. I hope we continue to cultivate these great people who've had those experiences, who want to give those experiences to other students, college age or other or, or, or whatnot. I hope we can keep building on that. And I hope we can continue moving forward as a field um, and providing a real value add to the college experience. Well, I can't imagine a better place to end things than right there. Larry Pickner, what a pleasure. Thank you for this conversation and thank you for being here. Thank you, Zach. It was my pleasure. I appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics on international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World Strides colleagues, Lindsay Kelcher and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.